As we continue our series about our role as witnesses to the truth and compassion of Jesus Christ, we turn back to the fourth chapter of the books of Acts. In this chapter, we hear about the ways that the early Christians both proclaimed and demonstrated the good news of God's grace. Our reading comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Hear now the word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grass withers, Well, good morning to everybody. How are you all this morning? Good, good. It's great to see everybody. Let's, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for drawing us together as your people today. We thank you for giving us this time that we may come together to worship, and we thank you, oh God, especially for the privilege of serving you. And now, Lord, as we consider your word, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to see everybody this morning. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you have probably seen it by now, unless you are brand new to the church, but I want to share with you something. You all know that our church motto is this, that we are a church that is called to love Jesus Christ, to love one another, and to love the city. So that has a special application for us this weekend, this week, and, and a special relevance. But let me begin by telling you a story. When I was in seminary, we would have a chapel service every day of the week, and we went more or less every day of the week. Maybe not every day, but we went most of the time. And I remember once we had a missionary who came and, and spoke at chapel. And he was actually a guy who was the head of a mission organization that we still are partnered with today. It's called, then it was called just Presbyterian Frontier Fellowship. Now we just call it Frontier Fellowship. His name was Dr. Harold Kurtz. And he came to speak to all of us brand new seminary students, would-be pastors. And this is what he said. He got up, and he was a wonderful man, just very winsome, great sense of humor. But at one point, he just all of a sudden got very serious. And this is what he said. He said, you know what? I'm looking all out at all of you seminary students, all of you would-be pastors, and I'm telling you this. You can stay here in the States, and your denomination will give you a church. But come with me on the very edges of the world, and I will give you a city. 
See, Presbyterian Frontier Fellowship is one of those missions that ministers on the very edges of Christianity, taking the gospel to unreached people groups all over the world. But, but it was one of those statements that really grabbed me. I mean, that, that's impressive. I mean, you're sitting there as a first or second year seminary student and you hear, wow, God's not just going to give me a church. God might give me a city. On the one hand, that's, that's empowering. That's encouraging. On the other hand, that is humbling. Does that mean I'm responsible for all those people in that city? That's a little scary. But Dr. Kurtz wanted us to know that, that so often his plans for the work we do are bigger than the plans we have for ourselves. I'm not just going to give you a church, he said. We're not just going to give you a church. We will give you a city. Well, beloved, I, I am here today to claim that I believe that the Lord our God has given the city of San Antonio to us. I don't mean exclusively First Presbyterian Church. I mean to the church of Jesus Christ. This is a city that is, going, that is undergoing a transformation, dare I say in Presbyterian company, a revival. <laughs> I, I mean, I know I gotta use that word somewhat cautiously. Presbyterians don't have revivals, we have lecture series. Um, <laughs> But it is something that's happening. There is something moving throughout this city. And it's not just happening across the city. It's even happening here in our church. And I want to go back to what Muffin said and to what, uh, and what Becky said about our Love SATX day yesterday. It was so much fun to be involved in a project that connected us with mission partners all over the city. Now, here's the other cool thing about it. This not only had a spatial dimension, not only were we connected to, to mission partners all over the city, City geographically, we were also connected to them throughout the year. There's a time dimension to this as well. You see, that wasn't just a one-day thing. All of the mission partners with whom we worked yesterday, they're open 365 days a year. That means that means that you can be involved with them 365 days a year, every weekend, anytime if you want to be. And that's our real hope. Yesterday was only supposed to be an introduction. It wasn't supposed to be a, a one-time, everybody-feels-good sort of service project. It was supposed to be an introduction. And you know what? Here's my sales pitch. It was awesome. It was so much fun. At, at Christmas Dreads yesterday, I was going around at the celebration lunch that we had. I was going around and I was just hearing different folks, hearing their different stories. And I heard about stories of, uh, I heard one story from, from Brooke here about a young wife's mother who, who, she had, who, who she had met several years ago and now she was here with, with her child. I met stories, I, I heard stories about the KRL, who, you know, our Kingdom Restoration Collaborative that was preparing to serve breakfast to about 40 people ended up serving breakfast to around 170 people. Chris, who works there, is, I think it will now be known citywide as the Eggman, um, because he was because he was making a, making a made-to-order breakfast and stuff like that. And then over at Haven for Hope, we had I don't know 200 people show up for the birthday party. And I'll tell you one interesting thing: I went out to Morningside Manor, Morningside Ministries, which is one of our our senior living communities with whom we partner. And I went out there and I knew they were having a big Halloween party. I knew, I mean, or a big, excuse me, big fall festival party. And, and I knew it was going to be awesome out there and that they were going to have, be having a great time. My daughter was out there face painting. They were going to be, you know, they were going to be doing all kinds of stuff, just, just really making connections and making relationships with the residents. And so I'm sitting here going from place to place all over town and I get out of my car and I see it and I'm expecting to hear all this noise and just kind of that hum of a crowd. And I, and I get out of my car and it is dead silent. I mean, it is quiet. 
And I'm thinking, am I in the wrong place? But no, I can see everybody over there. I'm thinking, oh, what's, what's going on? Are they praying? No, everybody's eyes were open. So I'm, I'm kind of stepping up quietly. It's kind of like, I don't know if any of you have ever been to like a professional golf tournament, but like when they're, when they're about to putt and like 200,000 people are just quiet. It's like, shh. I'm like, what's going on? This is creepy. So I'm kind of walking up. All of a sudden I hear, N25. Yes, bingo. Oh. They're alive. It's just bingo, everybody. It's just Jim Klaus was calling bingo for one of our senior citizens committees, but it was awesome because here they were, 100 people, but silent as, as well, I'm not going to say it, but they were quiet. But I was like, here's, this is fellowship. This is, this is awesome. We were, I saw people decorating, decorating the Presbyterian children's home and services. We had people writing letters to, to, um, to girls who were involved in human trafficking. It was incredible to see not only the depth, but the breadth of the ways that God has given us this city, the ways that he has invited us to be a part of his work of redemptive restoration here in San Antonio. I think that that is amazing, and he is allowing us to make a difference in this city. So I want to take that thought, and I want, to go, I want, I want us to go back to the passage that, ran, that Jane read for us just a few minutes ago. Now, I want us to be really honest about this passage. The passage that we've read today is one of those passages that a lot of Christians, especially American Christians, especially conservative evangelical Christians like us, would just as soon skip over. Because when they hear all of that talk about everybody had everything in common and everybody sold what they had and shared everything and all that, frankly, to a lot of American Christians, that sounds a lot like communism. And they don't like it. They don't want to hear it. I mean, take verse 32. No one, no one said that any of the things that they had belonged to him and was his own, but they had everything in common. And all they hear, most people, when they hear that, all they hear is Mark, Karl Marx's dictum that each according to his abilities and, and each according to his needs. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, liberal Christians love this passage because it sounds like, oh, this is great. This is a huge social program or something like that. But this isn't about politics, either on the liberal side or the conservative side. But the truth is, it's about something else. So let's just clear up a couple of things about this passage. Sorry, my microphone, my ear's a little weird today. Um, yes, the early Christians did, in fact, share what they have and they cared more about one another than they did about their private property, at least as this, as this story goes. No, it was not communism because the church did not demand this. This was not something that all Christians everywhere did all the time. It was voluntary. People were not compelled to give. They gave freely out of their own hearts. And so this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is not a commandment. This is an observation. It's voluntary. It's not compulsory. So let's set aside any philosophical or political understanding of this passage and let's get to the gospel message of this. Because I think that both sides misunderstand what's happening in this passage and they immediately turn it off or they try to blow over it. I want us to take a fresh look at this, especially as it relates to transformation of the city. Because I want to make the case today that this passage is not about communism, but about a commitment that people can see. This passage is about a commitment people can see. I mean, what would it be like if people would look at us and they would see, wow, look how committed those people are to the gospel. Look how committed they are 
to Jesus Christ and to one another and even to their neighbors. Now, here's what I think is going on here historically. In those early days of the church, it was just hard to be a Christian. This generation knew what it was like to lose friends, to lose business, to risk imprisonment, to, lose, uh, to, lose, uh, to, to feel death and pain, to lose money, to have nothing, just because you identified yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what happened? When everybody that you love starts losing things, what do you start doing? You start helping them. You start taking care of them. And that's what they were doing. They were taking care of one another. So on the one hand, this, this passage is about survival in the early church, but it's also about something else. I think that they did this not only to survive, I think they did this because they believed in the good news of Jesus Christ. And they believed it so deeply that they were willing to bet their lives and sell everything they had for the sake of his truth, his mission, and his power. This passage is about commitment. So let's look back a few weeks to Acts chapter 2. And we'll see that on the day of Pentecost, Peter did an extraordinary thing. He stood up in front of a crowd of thousands of people and started giving a speech about the extraordinary, reality-transforming, life and world-changing good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, the Bible says that God the Holy Spirit transformed the lives of 3,000 people who turned to Jesus Christ and following, started following him. I mean, 3,000 people, new followers. That's a good day, preacher. Not bad. But that was only the beginning. The Bible says that the people kept coming. The Bible says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that didn't end on Pentecost. People kept coming by the thousands. And it wasn't just because of what they heard the followers of Jesus Christ say it was also because of what they saw. It's also because of what they saw. It was because when people saw how Jesus Christ had changed the lives of those who believed, it got their attention. You see, witness is not just about what we say. It's about what people see. So, what do people see? Well, what did the people see then? They saw Peter and John healing people in the name of Jesus, will, uh, willing to literally lose the skin off their backs to proclaim Jesus Christ and to heal people. They literally saw a group of people who were willing to give up their own wealth, their own comfort, their own security for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of their fellow Christians who were in trouble, and even for the sake of their neighbors. And what they saw was a group of people who were so convicted about the truth of Jesus Christ, about the mission of Jesus Christ, and the power of Jesus Christ, that it changed the way they lived. So let's break that down for just a second. First of all, they saw people who were living in confidence of the truth of Jesus. Verse 33 says this, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. What that means is that they believed and they were willing to bet their lives 
that God had a plan to save the whole world. The prophets of old said that God was going to send a Messiah, a Savior, who would come not only to set people free from the sin and brokenness and fear and jealousy and hate in which they constantly live, but to set them free from death itself and from the fear of death. That he came to set us free from that fear that haunts our minds and stalks us with sickness and pain and hunger and thirst throughout our lives. He came to show us not only the, a way that we can live without fear of death, but he came to show us how to live in peace and to love one another and to live in peace with God. And this Messiah the, that God sent to say, change the world is none other than his own son, his own flesh and blood, Jesus of Nazareth. They were willing to bet their lives, and they did bet their lives on the fact that Jesus Christ is the real thing. He is the real God. God is real. And not only does he love us, he understands us, and he became one of us to show, us, show it. He gave his life to prove how much he loves us. God raised him from the dead to prove that he has the power to make a difference in our lives now and forever. And this group of Christians had the utter confidence in, had utter confidence in the fact that Jesus is real, that we need him and he is holding us in our best moments and in our worst mo moments. And he's even holding us in everything in between. So this is a group that lived so deeply in the confidence of the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ that people could tell it on their faces in their lives. In addition to that, they saw people who were willing to live in the confidence, excuse me, in the confidence of the mission of Jesus. The first Christians bet their lives not only on their personal salvation, but on the idea of the kingdom of God. That is, that God was not only coming to save you, to pluck you, to, to liberate you from your sin or from the fire or from death, but to save and to transform the world. The vision that God's will would be done on earth, even as it's done in heaven. The vision of God, the kingdom of God, is the world as it's supposed to be. The world as God created it to be. And they had such a firm conviction in the kingdom vision that Jesus described that they were willing to give their lives to it. So much so that they were willing to take care of one another no matter what it cost them. I love it in Acts 4.32. It says, there was not a needy person among them. Just stop right there. What if our church got the reputation that we were so baptized, so convicted, so immersed, so saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ that no one in this church ever had to have an economic concern again? Just think about that for a second. What would that mean? That you are a covenant partner of this church and you never have to worry about medical expenses, rent, economic expenses, loneliness, connections ever again. These guys were so saturated. They loved each other so much that people were interested. They, they wanted to know what was going on. It made an impression not only on other Christians, but even on their critics. If they're willing to stick their necks out for one another, economically, politically, socially, and take care of one another, then they must really believe this stuff. This wasn't just about being social. 
This was so important because it was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And these people depended on one another. Yes, they would laugh together, but they would also cry together. They would suffer together. They would celebrate together. And they would take care of one another when nobody else would. But you know what? It's one thing to do that for your friends. It's one thing to do that for your family. It's one thing to do that for the people that you call your brothers and sisters. But what about the other people? What about the other people who are suffering in the world? Well, they took care of one another, but they didn't stop there. They also took care of their neighbors. They reached out to their neighbors with boldness and power. They ministered to the city. Look a little bit earlier in that chapter, it says the apostles performed so many signs and wonders among the people. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered and all of them were healed. I mean, consider this. They were doing that. Peter and John were doing that at the risk of imprisonment and torture. They were not doing this because it was safe. They were doing this literally, as I said earlier, at the cost of the skin on their own backs as they were scourged. And guess what? That got people's attention. And here's what I think is so powerful. They didn't do it to take over. They didn't do it to exert power or to seize the government. Their purpose was not control. Their purpose was service. They weren't focused on their own security and comfort. They were focused on the people's needs. And Acts says this, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. They looked at the needs, just like Jesus did when he looked upon the crowds and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd and he said, I can make a difference here. Embedded in the mission of Jesus and the kingdom of God is this concept that we often hear, but I don't think we fully grasp, which is the concept of shalom. The Hebrew word shalom is the word that we often casually just translate as the word peace. But shalom is more than peace. It is more than just the absence of violence or aggression. Shalom is the peace that exists when we care about other people's needs and other people's well-being just as much as we care about our own. And so what that means is that if I'm connected to you, if you have a problem, then I have a problem. If I'm connected to you, you're connected to me, then if you have a need, then I have a need. And if I have what you need, then you have what you need. It's kind of like, have you ever had that feeling like, have you ever stumped your toe and it makes your whole body hurt? I mean, even your ear up here hurts. You stump your toe and even your ear hurts. Why is that? It's because it's connected. And we would never doubt that it's one body. And yet when we're isolated into individual bodies, even though we're still part of the body of Christ, we seem to, to feel a disconnect and we can sort of turn our eyes away. It's like, as long as there's no violence happening, that must be shalom, right? No, shalom is making sure that if I need it and you need it, then both of us have what we need. That's what shalom is. Now we can talk a lot about what do people need. And I, I, I do think it's important that we understand that this goes beyond just physiological needs. Jesus said, after all, 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's not only a specific reference to scripture, it's also an understanding that we are more simply than, than eating machines. We are more than just, just thirsty people, hungry people. We have other needs. Abraham Maslow in the, in the 1940s described a hierarchy of needs. He said, all humans have physiological needs, that is our, our bodily needs. We have, we have a need for safety and security. We have a need for love and belonging. We have a need for esteem, that is to have confidence in ourselves and the respect of others. And we also have a need for self-actualization, that is the, the need to understand that we have a purpose in life. And what we have to share, the gospel of Jesus Christ, helps us to recognize that all of those things are important because Jesus didn't come simply to take care of our physiological needs and walk away. He came to establish a new relationship between the creator and his creation because only the, only the creator can give us those identity-related needs of comfort, of security, of love and belonging, of esteem, of purpose. And that's what Jesus calls us to understand. That our service is not simply about handouts, it's not simply about charity, it's about relationship. Jesus didn't just, didn't just snap his fingers and take away our sins. Jesus came and became one of us made relationships with people, made a relationship with humanity so that we would understand that he understands us. So that we would understand not only that we have what we need, but that we are loved and that we are cared for. And so the service that we provide is not simply about meeting people's immediate physical or physiological needs. It's about restoration. Restoration is more than simply making sure that people have, have water to drink, medicine that they need, full bellies. It's about understanding that we are created in the image of God and that Jesus Christ came to restore the image of God in us. Dr. Michael Rhodes of Memphis, Tennessee once came and shared with us an important framework for understanding the work that God's called us to do. And he challenged us to think beyond what he called the soup line mentality and work toward what he called the potluck mentality. Now, what does that mean? The difference between these two images, the potluck mentality and the soup line mentality is this, that people who have a soup line mentality say, all of us who have, we just give to the other people so that they can just, you know, they can have what they need. The potluck, on the other hand, the potluck mentality says that I look at you and you look at me and it's not enough for me to simply give you a bowl of soup. I want you to contribute and to find your purpose and to find all of those other gifts that God has put in you as the image bearer of God the creator. In other words, you are called not simply to receive, you are, you are called to contribute to give and to live out your God-given purpose. When we serve people in this church, from this church, our hope, and when I would say when we're at our best, because we're not always at our best, but when we're at our best, what we're hoping to do is not simply to give people something that they need. We want to empower them so that they 
can also contribute, take pride in what they're doing so that they can feel the esteem, not only of the community, but of their father so that they will know that they have purpose. So they will know that they have value. We do all of this so that, so that the image of God will be restored in every child of God. Finally, the people saw that those who were following Jesus Christ lived in confidence in the transformative power of Jesus. What does that mean? These first Christians lived and bet their lives on the belief that God really does have the power to make a difference in our lives. They were betting their lives on the conviction that if they loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if they gave him glory, and if they loved one another like Jesus did, and they trust and they loved their neighbors, and they loved themselves as they loved themselves, and if they just trusted in what Jesus Christ had done for their salvation, then God would not only make a difference in their lives now and forever, but that he would change the world. And they believed that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead was going to change the world by restoring our relationship with him and our relationships with one another. And so at the heart of the gospel is this promise of resurrection, that what God has said he will do, he will do. What God has said he can do, he can do. What God has declared is coming to pass, he will bring to pass. That our God is a God who keeps his promises. Again, this story is not just about a commitment, not just about a witness, it's about a commitment that people could see. What is the value of us maintaining these partnerships? Is it just to throw holiday parties? Is it just to, to enact a program? No, it's to build relationships. It's to help p to connect people to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for what that means not only now but forever. But it's also to provide a witness that people can see of the truth and the mission and the power of our God to transform lives. There was not a needy person among them, says Acts, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What did people see in the early church? What they saw was a group of people who were so convicted about the truth of Jesus Christ and his mission and God's power that it changed the way they lived. That's what people saw in that generation. And it got, that it got their attention. You know what? I don't know if it changed the city in which they lived, but it definitely changed the world. Our witness is not just what we say. Our witness is what people see. So what are people seeing from us, the people of Jesus Christ in our generation? Will you pray with me? Oh God, you have called us to be witnesses, not just by the things we say, not just by the things we declare, oh Lord, but by the things we claim, the things we do, and the things people see. Lord, we know that there are people in this room right now who are, who are ready to commit their lives to you in a way that people can see.
who are ready to, to let go of things that have long held them, who are ready to embrace challenges that made them afraid, who, who Lord, want to trust you with everything. Lord, empower us as your church to be a group, to be a people, to be a church that is so sold out for you that it will be seen in our generation. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.